Egypt, that phone line still blowing up. Oh my god, it was like a Christmas tree. Hello, who's this? Who I got on the line? Hey, this is Henry from Chile. Henry, all right, from Chile. Enrico Suave. What's up, homie? Is it Danny? Yes, Danny Trejo. Whoa, man, I'm a big fan from out of here, Chile. That's right, Chicano Soul Shop. We're all over the world. We definitely in South America. Say hello to all my fans down there in Chile. Hey, I want to hear some new music, man. I'm so happy you're doing music now, so you have any for me? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I got some jams for you, homie. God bless you. Hey, make sure you tell everybody in Chile hello for me, all right? How about this one right here? Devilish Angel by Marty Obey and Malik Malo. Right here on the Chicano Soul Shop, powered by Trails Music. I'ma die as you fly away, kissing on the flame of a fallen angel. I hear the fear in a heartbeat. Black clouds turn to love in the rain. Drowning out the sound of purpose. I know that you're worth it. Thank 
all of you for the love. Thank you for the restaurants. Thank you for the donut shop. Thank you for the movies. You know what? Right now we're working on volume two, Chicano Soul Job. Powered by Trejo's Music. This is Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, on the air. Tuning you into the Latino literary renaissance in all its splendor. Interviews, teatro, rap, fiction, poetry, memorias, composer spotlights, and more. Always más. Thank you for tuning in to Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say on the air. This is Tony Diaz, El Libro Traficante. You're joining us for a one-hour special on the works of Danny Trejo, a.k.a. Machete. We did a great interview with him right when his new book came out. It's titled Trejo, My Life of Crime, Redemption, and Hollywood. But that wasn't enough to contain all of his artistic endeavors. Of course, we're not going to go over the films, which most people know him for already. We want to celebrate his other art forms, especially the book, but also his endeavors in the music industry. Today, we're going to feature excerpts from Chicano Soul Shop, Volume 1. And you'll hear some of the songs that he selected. You'll hear Danny introducing some of them and living it up on the air also, we're going to be sharing more of the readings from the book as read by Danny Trejo for the audio version of the book. I want to thank Atria Books. You know they are a division of Simon & Schuster. This is just another way to celebrate how the work and vision of Danny Trejo intersects with music and books, which is really convenient for our show because <laughs> that's exactly what we are about. The book is titled Trejo, My Life of Crime, Redemption, in Hollywood. It's available as a hardcover book, it's available as an ebook, and it's available as an audiobook. In addition, there is a Spanish version titled Trejo, Mi Vida de Crimen, Redención y Hollywood. We appreciate all of your support for all of our writers from experienced voices such as today to a brand new voice that we'll be celebrating next week, the following week, or the week after that. We fill in the spaces in between to bring you our community and our terms on our terms. We hope that you'll support our radio station as well. You can make a donation by visiting kpft.org, clicking on the donation button, and making a donation in the name of Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. You can also find out more about our work by visiting the website nuestrapalabra.org. And we want to recognize our crew who are donating their community cultural capital to keep this endeavor going. I want to thank Rodrigo Bravo for brilliantly mixing all of our shows. Leti Lopez, Brian Parras, Liana Lopez, Laura Razo, Lupe Mendez, Gabriel Vasquez. This is Tony Diaz. Hey, check into some more of Chicano Soul Shop Volume 1 from the Trejo Records machine. And then also more excerpts from the book Trejo, My Life of Crime, Redemption, and Hollywood. You've been gone now for almost a year and you asked me to forget it, forget it later, baby. 
the work of Danny Trejo as manifested in Chicano Soul Shop Volume 1 and also his book, Trejo, My Life of Crime, Redemption, and Hollywood. Thanks for tuning in. Chicano scripts rolled through Hollywood that both centered on the formation and growth of La M, the biggest Mexican gang in California prison system. Since I was a high-profile Chicano who'd done time, both movies reached out to me. They knew my involvement would give them credibility. One was called American Me, directed by and starring Edward James Olmos. The other was Blood In and Blood Out. When I sat down to read American Me, I was excited. Olmos was just coming off an Oscar-nominated performance for Stand and Deliver, and now he was making a movie about a world I knew intimately. But my initial excitement quickly changed to dismay. Ten pages in, I knew there was going to be problems. In the opening scene, the mother of Montoya Santana, the character Edward James almost played in the film, is raped by sailors in the night of the Zoot Suit Riots, leaving her unsure who Montoya's real father is. That was straight up untrue. I knew it was untrue, because almost character was based on a real guy in the Mexican mafia named Rodolfo Cardena, a.k.a. Cheyenne. That wasn't the only problem. About 20 pages later came a shocking scene in which something violent happened to Santana in Juvenile Hall. Because of what happened later, I won't mention what it was, the whole thing was a fire, started in falsehood. I don't want to add fuel to. The truth is Cheyenne had never been abused in that way, and the fact that in the script he immediately got revenge on his attacker didn't matter. I know this sounds harsh, but no person who ever been violated in that way could ever raise to the top of a prison gang. They could be killers and bad motherfuckers, but they'd never run a prison gang. It wouldn't happen. More important, it didn't. Another big concern I had was that any movie about the Mexican mafia would have to be okayed 
by the OGs in prison before I signed on either project. I was definitely going to have to find out what the shot callers thought about it. And finally, somewhere before page 30 in the American Me script, I saw the writer call the gang La M. This is the actual name of the Mexican Mafia, and I had a feeling using it would be a big no-no for Joe Morgan, Robot, Donald Garcia, and Sailor Boy, some of the La M bigwigs I'd known since my days in Juvie, White TS, Dual Vocational Institute, and San Quentin. I knew just how serious and deadly La M was. I'd come up with the guys, but my Uncle Gilbert was the one who really knew the older shot callers. I was lucky, because Gilbert was so respected in the pen, I got that level of respect passed on to me. When I got to prison, Gilbert cautioned me about joining the mafia. He said that was a contract for life and we shouldn't have any part of it. So I stayed away, but that didn't mean I wasn't friends with the guys. Sailor Boy and I starts our clothes together in YTS. Robot Salas was a good friend. Donald Garcia and I had gone back since junior high school. Gilbert was a good friend with all of them, especially Joe Pegleg Morgan the current head of the Mexican Mafia. Even though we weren't members of the gang, Gilbert and I were classified as sympathizers, a designation that wasn't casual. Ramon Mundo Mendoza, a hitman for the Mexican Mafia, later commented on my friendship with the organization. Mundo said, Danny Trejo is blessed. He was friends with people on both sides of the line, but always got respect. I've done time with these men. They were serious vatos. Their world and their lives were being represented, or, I suspected, misrepresented in the film, and I couldn't imagine they'd be happy about it. You're like two people. One is like a kid. That's the one I cared about. But the other one... The way it has always been. From father to son. It's all we've ever had. It is us. From brother to brother. No, move the door, man! He ruled a world we do not know. The Italians are still running the show, but they're getting sloppy, man. You'll regret today you make that choice. Well, your business kills kids, man. You know, sometimes your whole life can change from being in the wrong place at the wrong time. If we see your weakness now, Holmes, everybody's gonna see it. Our clique, our barrio, our families, that's all we got is gives to us. It is us. We don't fake it. We just take it. You got a lot of heart, Carnal. Maybe too much. 
director Edward James Olmos. Inspired by a true story. American Me. Edward James Olmos had arranged a meeting to discuss the script. We were to meet at Jerry's famous deli in Encino. Edward was bringing his agent, and I brought Eddie Bunker. I knew if anyone could suss out truth from bullshit, it would be Eddie Bunker. We were sitting in a booth waiting for them to arrive when Eddie glanced up and said, They're here. I turned around and saw Edward in full cholo wear. He was in a county blue shirt buttoned up at the top and flying open on the bottom. He wore county blue pants. The only thing he was missing was a hairnet. This was a business meeting. Eddie and I were dressed like casual businessmen. Edward greeted me with an, Orale se, que onda? I was confused, obviously not by the greeting, but by his appearance. Edward was an actor, a great actor. He'd never been part of a gang, and he'd certainly never done time in prison. But here he was, playing like he was an OG from the streets. I figured he was most likely employing some kind of method approach to the role he would be playing in the film. I love actors, and I love movies. Replaying movies in my head helped me survive the time I was in the hole in Folsom and Soledad. But I know the difference between real life and make-believe. Actors are incredible at making people believe that they are divorced dads or a woman with a secret or a soldier killing Nazis or a boxer Two fights passed when they should have hung up their gloves, but they are not those things. I don't think there's ever been a mobster who can play a better mobster than Ray Liotta or Robert De Niro or Al Pacino. That's an actor's job. But their role extends only as far as make-believe allows. Robert De Niro never actually beaten a man to death. And even though Edward James almost played a zoot suitor, he wasn't one. My father was. He was a veterano zoot suit gangster from 38th Street, the gang at the center of the controversial Sleepy Lagoon murder case, the focus of the movie Edward starred in called Zoot Suit. My mom was from Ford Maravilla the same gang that Joe Morgan came up in in the late 30s. I had too many personal connections to the liberties Edward was taking with the story for any of it to sit well with me. But honestly, my biggest problem probably had as much to do with my insecurities as with what Edward James Almost was doing. Him dressing up as a cholo made me question whether Edward, an incredible actor, a lifelong devotee to the craft, wanted to bond with me not as a fellow artist, but as a gangster of some sort. Did he look at me and see the person I'd been in my past life? 
a life I'd worked so hard to put in my rearview mirror? It wasn't the first time I'd experienced this dynamic. It was something I was overly sensitive about, but I felt like certain Latinos in Hollywood viewed me as a gangster, not a peer. To them, I was a circus curio from the hood, a world they certainly recognized but never inhabited. The meeting was off to a confusing start. We ordered sandwiches and matzo ball soup and started talking about the film. Edward got straight to the point and asked if I was interested in working on this project. Eddie Bunker immediately raised one of our chief concerns. He said, Edward, did you talk to Joe about this film? He was referring to Joe Morgan. Almo said, I met with Joe. He gave the okay. Eddie Bunker was a lifelong friend of Joe Morgan's. Immediate red flag. As soon as Eddie Bunker asked Edward the question, I could sense his demeanor shift. If prison had taught me anything, it taught me when someone was backing up. There seemed to be a hint of deflection and deception in Almos's answer. I glanced at Eddie Bunker and saw that he shared my doubt. I got down to business. Look, Edward, the problem is there are things in this script that aren't true. I told him some of my concerns. Edward said, I know, but it makes more theatrical sense for the piece. I was hoping he'd say, I know, and we're going to address that, or we're going to figure out a way to tell our story without twisting the truth of real people. But he didn't. He was married to the idea that the fictional art of the script was more important than letting truth get in the way of a good story. This might be true in the office of Hollywood producers, but it wasn't in the world I knew. I couldn't believe how casual he was about details that were so critical. I offered yet another point of contention. Eddie, Cheyenne was killed by the Nuestra Familia. He wasn't killed by his own gang. That was huge. The day Cheyenne died, 1972, he knew there was a hit on him. So did the guards. They offered him the option of staying in his cell in Palm Hall at the Chino Reception Center. Instead, Cheyenne walked out on the tier and was stabbed over 50 times by the Nuestra Familia gang. He is remembered by La M as being a martyr, not someone who would be killed by his own brothers. Edward said that detail was theatrical too. Jesus, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Still tried to be diplomatic. I like Edward James almost and had deep respect for what he meant as an actor to the Hispanic community. I made a statement couched in a joke. Edward, the people you're talking about are not theatrical people. Eddie Bunker and I shared a dark laugh at that one. From their reaction, I got a sense that Edward James almost and his agent didn't like the way the meeting was going. I don't know what they were hoping for. I can't imagine they didn't know there were going to be issues. 
Maybe they were praying I wouldn't question the script and would just be happy to be considered for an acting job like a regular Joe Schmo actor at a meeting campaigning for a part. I was full of unanswered questions. The biggest was what Lyme bigwigs really thought about all of this. All the talk of theatricality and interesting character arcs set my mind racing. Hollywood has always told stories of gangsters, some loosely based on their lives, others taken straight from court transcripts. But I had never found myself so squarely in the intersection of fiction and reality. Looking back, I honestly believe Edward James Almost, utter brilliance and mastery in the world of acting and film blinded him to some degree to the deadly seriousness of the prison politics and how much sway it carries on the streets, even if, in a deeply ironic way, it was the central theme of the script he was directing. There's no poetic license when you're pissing off the wrong people. A lot of it was just common sense. I would rather have a rabid dog for a friend than an enemy. Eddie Bunker leaned in from his position as Captain Clerk in San Quentin. There was no one in the world who knew the ramifications of prison politics as well as Eddie Bunker. He said to almost, Edward, are you sure about all this? Eddie Bunker was trying to make almost see where this whole thing could go sideways but almost was clearly determined to make this version of the film. We finished our meal and agreed to meet almost at his office the next day to continue discussing the project. I was hoping he would sleep on some of the issues we raised and rethink some of the things, but my gut told me he was set on the story he wanted to tell. The next day I got my answer. When I stepped into Edward's office, I found him decked out in the cholo wear again. Edward wasn't the only one who slept on the issues we covered the day before. After leaving Jerry's Deli, I struggled to identify what really bothered me so much about his costume. I knew my conflict was deeply rooted in all the time I had spent as part of gangs or in prison. While I appreciate his dedication to portraying a life he didn't live or even know, that's what actors do. What bothered me lay in the heart of my own feelings, of what being a cholo meant. When you take the dress and the code of a cholo or a crypt or a blood or a Mexican mafia member or an Aryan brotherhood for that matter, you become something that is no longer Mexican or black or white. When it comes to gang wear, how you are dressed is not merely a costume, it's a declaration that you are committed to a life of crime for which you are willing to sacrifice the well-being of those around you, your moms, dads, wives, sisters, brothers, children, friends, anyone. To me, a real Mexican 
white and black were the kind of men who worked hard and took their kids to Little League practice after working hard all day. Perhaps I was overreaching after all. I was already interested in taking the part of Geronimo in Blood In, Blood Out, another prison gang movie where we were all decked out as cholos. But these were the feelings I was feeling for better or for worse. I guess you could also argue that I myself was playing by gang rules by arguing against the liberties almost took with the script. But the untruth made me deeply uncomfortable. I watched plenty of movies about organized crime, but I never knew the players personally before, and I knew too much to keep my mouth shut. I didn't want to play the middleman, but I smelt danger. Edward said that he wanted me to think about the part of Pedro Santana, Montoya Santana's father, who disapproved of his lifestyle. I looked at the part and immediately wasn't interested. I told him I would think about it. I didn't tell Edward I wasn't interested in the part of Pedro Santana because it reminded me too much of my father. I didn't bring up the controversial aspects of the script again. I didn't have to dig any further into those complicated corners because Edward made the decision easy. What totally killed American me, for me, was when Edward told me that any actor considering working on Blood In, Blood Out would not be a part of American me. That was the final blow. There were so few parts in Hollywood for Chicano actors as it is. I thought it was unfair that when two projects that would employ a ton of my Chicano brothers would finally come along, one of the movies would deny entrance to the other, especially coming from someone who was involved so deeply in Chicanismo. We left it with me telling Edward I would have to run it by my agent. But one thing I didn't mention was that right before I went to the meeting, my cousin Sal had called me from L.A. County Jail. When I picked up the phone, Sal said, Danny, Joe Morgan wants to call you. They were both in high power, a section of L.A. County for high-profile or especially dangerous prisoners. Sal sounded concerned. Are you all right? We both knew a phone call from Joe could be very, very bad news. I'm good, Sal. How you doing? You know how it is. Just fighting my case. Just call me if you need anything, okay? Yeah, Joe is going to call you at 5 at Bunker's house. Tomorrow? No, today. I knew what he wanted to talk to me about had to be serious business. By calling me at Eddie's, it was clear Joe didn't want to put a red light on me by calling my house. Tell him I'll be there. Be good, Holmes. You know it, Holmes. He hung up. Of course, Big Joe knew about the movie, and of course, he already knew I'd met Edward James almost the day before. From his cell in San Quentin, Chino, or L.A. County, 
Very little went down in the world that Big Joe didn't know. And this upcoming phone call confirmed my suspicion. Joe wasn't happy about the film. Joe Morgan was the son of an Irish-American father and a Croatian mother. But he grew up in Mexican neighborhoods. He was as hard as they come. He joined the Maravilla gang when he was a kid and quickly rose through the ranks. Joe had lost his leg from a gun blast and got the nickname Peg Leg. The loss of his leg didn't stop him. Joe was still one of the best handball players I'd ever seen. He spoke Spanish perfectly and had an incredible presence. When you got near his cell, the monocules in the air got heavy. Joe only talked to people if they were his best friend or if he wanted them dead. I knew Joe didn't want me dead, but he wanted something from me. That afternoon, I headed over to Bunkers. He already put on pot of coffee. Eddie made the best coffee in the world. At 5 p.m., on the button, the phone rang. Eddie answered, What's up, Big Joe? You good? Yeah. He listened a bit. Yeah, he's right here. And handed me the phone. I hopped on the line. Danny, ¿qué pasó? I'm good, Holmes. He said, I hear you're going up for that movie, American Me. I'm up for both of them. Blood in, blood out, too. He got straight to the point. Which one are you going to do? I said, come on, Joe. I'm going to do blood in, blood out, Holmes. He was happy. He said, good, good. That's the cute one. We both laughed. Then he said, La Honda, stretching out the word. La Honda was the name of the fictional Mexican gang in Blood In, Blood Out. I always laughed thinking about Joe Morgan calling Blood In, Blood Out a movie about a gang of stone-cold killers, the cute one. Vacayero, un de pedo. There's going to be a lot of problems with that other movie, Joe added. I figured. He talked about almost directly. That is running around saying he met with me in Chino and got my approval. Saw bullshit. I refused to see him. There's a lot of bullshit in that script. That's what I tried to tell Eddie. He said, you know, Danny, you could do that other movie. He was saying he wouldn't hold it against me if I did American Me. I said, no, Joe, I got too much respect. Gracias, Holmes. Vato's got enough respect for you that you get away with it. Thanks, Joe. Then I asked him, hey, Joe, what about the crew and the other actors? He laid any concern I had to rest. The crew and the actors are just workers, Holmes. They're just getting a paycheck. Orale, Holmes. That was a load off my mind. I knew many of the actors involved in American Me, and I didn't want them to have any trouble. Joe said, be good, Danny. Good checking in with you. And hung up. In the heart of the city. In the soul of its people. 
There is a power stronger than law. I have never been so proud of my life as today. A force deeper than friendship. I don't forget where I come from or who I am. That's what keeps me going every day. A passion greater than life. Who are you fighting? You're just fighting yourself. Louis, those are my carnales. They're my family. I'm your family. It's the tie that bound them together in their youth. Let me see the color inside you. And now will drive them apart. This is the epic story of three brothers. Run, carnal, run! Vatos locos forever, carnal, let's go! One searched for truth in the law. You kill your own people! No! One expressed his passion through art. To be completely sold out by the end of the night. And one found power in prison. No one can stop us. From the director of An Officer and a Gentleman and the producer of La Bamba. Blood in, blood out. That's a bond you can never break. The crazy thing is that Blood In, Blood Out was a movie that covered many of the same themes as American Me. Racial politics in prison, murder, betrayal. The difference was that Blood In, Blood Out was a piece of fiction. It never tried to present itself as the real story of the Mexican mafia. Months later, when we were in San Quentin shooting Blood In, Blood Out, I heard that American Me was running into problems in Folsom with the Sureños there. In fact, Someone from production reached out to me to offer me a job if I would go to Folsom and serve as a consultant on American Me for two days. My suspicions was they needed diplomatic clout to help them, but I didn't want any part of it. Later, after the movie was about to be released, the rumor of trouble was brewing. William Forsythe, played J.D., the Joe Morgan character, reached out to me and asked if everything was going to be all right. I told him, of course. The actors will have no problem. You're just workers, getting a paycheck. I told him I thought he'd done a great job in the film because he had. William Forsythe plays a great gangster. I had no idea just how bad things were going to get. The word on the street was at least eight people died because of their involvement in American Me. Maybe ten. Four outside and four to six inside. One of the guys murdered was a Mexican mafia member named Charlie Marquez, who had fallen into disrepute because of his drug use. He was given a pair of Levi's, some tennis shoes, and money to buy weed to be an extra in a scene and act as an unofficial technical advisor before being gunned down in Ramona Gardens. Another guy was shot seven times just for being in the deep background of a scene where he sits in a car. 
a community gang liaison named Anna Lizarraga, the top consultant on American Me, was executed outside her home in front of her son. Besides being warned about not getting involved in the project, like almost, Lizarraga falsely claimed that she too had met with Joe Morgan and gotten his approval. Almos was like a little kid playing with a grenade, thinking the whole time it was a sparkler. The violent aftershock rumbled for years. Southern vatos I knew who were in prison in the years that followed hated the fact hits were out on Sureños who'd been involved in the production. A lot of these men were simply drug addicts who needed money for a fix when they agreed to be extras or do bit parts in the film. It's a horrible chapter made worse because it was all so avoidable. The average viewer or film critic wouldn't even know the difference between American Me and Blood In, Blood Out. I do not condone the violence, but even if it's wrong, it's irresponsible to pretend there might not be repercussion. The American Me saga brought my past life as a convict front and center. However far I'd come from the fire didn't mean it wasn't still hot. Edward James almost had just come off an Oscar nomination. His star was in the ascendant. I think that might have blinded him to what otherwise might have been more obvious. Those of us who had done serious time on the streets or in prison knew threats from prominent gangs could and should never be dismissed, but not everyone has that background. Producers and Hollywood don't always necessarily understand the nature of people they are representing. I will never discount the contribution Edward James almost has made to Hollywood and his constant advocacy for Latinos. But the whole episode was, in my view, unnecessarily reckless. If Edward James almost had studied Cheyenne a little more, maybe he could have told a deeper story while still not glorifying the violence. That might be my biggest problem with American Me. While the producers said they wanted the film to encourage kids not to follow the path, it illuminated it in big Hollywood lights. American Me made a California prison gang known only to prison insiders into an entity with worldwide fame. Raymond Mundo Mendoza later spoke about the recruiting power the film American Me had on Chicano youth. He said American Me elevated the public awareness of an organization that was becoming more than just a prison gang. And he added that this was something that was not lost on the impressionable aspiring gang members who now viewed joining the Emmy in the same light that the kid from the other side of the tracks would aspire to join our country's armed forces. 
Even now, whenever Crips and Bloods start with the Mexican Mafia, they say, hey, you know what happened in juvie to that Cheyenne guy? American me gave them a critical jumping off point from which they felt emboldened to disrespect the Mafia, causing confrontation that led to even more deaths. Other gangs felt if a Mexican-American, like almost, made the movie, it must be true. This story isn't new. It's well documented. There was no shortage of voices cautioning almost, finding contradiction in things he said, or expressing dismay at the final product, including police officers hired on the film and an associate warden hired as a consultant, but he couldn't hear it from anyone. Production on American Me was slated to start at Folsom Penitentiary. The train had left the station, and I had said all I could say. You are listening to Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. This is a one-hour special showcasing the music curated by Danny Trejo, Chicano Soul Shop Volume 1. We're also sharing readings from Danny Trejo's book, Trejo, My Life of Crime, Redemption, and Hollywood. Please enjoy, spread the word. You're tuning into Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. Well, I've been trying to say no simple words to you Oh, those very simple little words to you Sister Coke, Coke's twin Tony, Salita, and I followed her to the alley. These were my cousins. We shared a room at my grandmother's house. 
and we never rolled without each other. I've always been in a gang of some sort, even if it was five and six-year-old girls. Laying next to a trash can in high grass was a dead cat with big Mary Carmen was right. She was a mother cat. A group of men stood outside a factory smoking. One of them said, Get away from that thing. Can't you see a dog got to it? Salita said, We have to save her babies. Where are her babies? We searched through the grass and up the alley for kittens, but couldn't find any. Coke had the idea to bury the cat, give her a proper funeral. We had to hurry because the evening was spreading out against the sky. We got a stick to push the cat onto a piece of plywood and carry her to my grandmother's backyard. The ground was harder than I thought. After a few minutes digging, I wanted to quit. It's probably deep enough. We slid the cat off the board, covered her with dirt. Just then, my dad bust out the back door. What the hell's going on? If you kids don't get in this house, I'm going to smack some A mother cat died, said Mary Carmen. But my dad had already disappeared back into the house. Blackie, our dog, slipped through the screen door and started pawing at the grave. No, Blackie, no, I said. We tied Blackie up to keep the mother cat safe. Salita made the sign of the cross, and we started to pray. Later that night, my Uncle Art came running into the house, shirt torn and bloody. He said he'd gotten jumped in a bar off of San Fernando Road. Without missing a beat, he and the rest of my uncles grabbed sticks and bats and ran out the door. About an hour later, the men of the family swaggered back into the house, bragging about how many people they'd f***ed up. My grandma grabbed us kids and made us kneel with her in the corner of the living room to save the rosary. I watched out the corner of my eye while my abuelito stomped around, pumping his fist, yelling about how macho we trejos were. My uncles were laughing, passing beers, doing play-by-plays of what had gone down. My grandmother made us pray louder, looking at my cousins and me kneeling in prayer for the second time that day. You'd never guess that every one of us would go to jail or prison, but we did. No matter how close to God my grandmother wanted us to be, we were already on the path. We were Trejos. If my family had a legacy, that was it. And you'd never guess that the baddest of the bad, me, would make it out of the prison system and instead of dying in the streets as a stone-cold junkie and killer, I'd end up being shot, stabbed, decapitated, blown up, hung, flattened by an elevator, and disintegrated into a pool table until my eyeballs rolled into the pockets in a career that made me the most 
killed actor in Hollywood history, that I'd meet presidents and have murals of my face painted on walls in different continents, that companies would want me as their spokesman because I was not only loved but trusted, and that I'd have an official day named after me in Los Angeles because the Danny Trejo who I was before I got clean and became a drug counselor or before the world got to know me through my acting career was no one anyone would want to paint or honor because back then I was the Mexican you didn't want to fuck with.